Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Callaway. I serve as the student and education pastor here at Unity. In today's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer brings to us the second part of the series of what God's Word says concerning gender and homosexuality. Stay with us to the end and find out how you can connect to Unity. us to worship our God, and that is the purpose of our, of our being and our existence. We don't have to climb some great mountain and talk to some enlightened being as to what the meaning of life is. Life is found in Jesus Christ. Life is God, and your meaning is found in Him. Your meaning is found in His purposes. Your meaning and my meaning is found in being a part of, of Him and following life His way as outlined through His Word. Tonight we begin part two of a segment, The Bible, Gender, and Homosexuality. Again, if you have not listened to the first segment, you really need to back up and and find that first. This is part two. This is the practical application of things. You see, in part one, we talked about the theology of homosexuality. How does God truly feel about it when we exposit, as we lift up from the truths, from the pages of God's Word, how does God feel about homosexuality? The problem is, if I just leave you with that, you're going to have the sense in which homosexuality is something, something simply that we prepare ourselves with so that we can defeat others in a debate. That is not the intention here. We don't come here with a high hand with the Word of God, and we don't come down on people as if they're below us, beneath us, something to be conquered, defeated. This is, truth is not a competition. We're trying to simply share truth with people, but we do so in a spirit of love. So here today, we're going to talk about, here's the, some of the questions people are going to have, some of the accusations that they're going to make some of the situations that you will encounter with homosexuality. You've got to take this message from church where everybody says, amen, brother, amen, amen, where we're generally speaking in agreement that the word of God is true. But we have to go out there and we have to sack groceries with Jimmy. And Jimmy doesn't believe the word of God. And he's going to have dissenting opinions as to what gender and homosexuality are. You've got to go out there. The guardrails are off. You're not surrounded by like-minded people any longer. You're in the minority. And you've got to know, how do we have conversations with people about this? How do we navigate these things? What are some of the things that we should expect to hear from people as we engage in meaningful conversation? Notice I use the terms meaningful conversation, not a debate. If you find that your conversation about gender and homosexuality are turning hostile, it's turning into a debate. We have lost the spirit of this message. If somebody has genuine questions about what God says in his word, and they're willing to genuinely listen, now we have something. So we're not looking to defeat people in debates. We're looking to lovingly share truth with one another. So what are some of these things that you're going to hear as you take this message of the Bible? You try going out there and preaching Romans 1, 24 to 27, and see how people respond. It won't be very favorable. In fact, you'll have some people who have armed themselves against these very attacks, if you will. And that's how they, feel, that's how they see truth, as an attack. No matter how loving you are, they're going to see it as an attack. You hate me. The only way you're going to be able to convince them otherwise is to demonstrate a spirit and an attitude of love. Don't be snarky. 
Don't be unkind. Don't be harsh with your words. Be loving and polite, but direct and straight. This is what the Word of God says. So you'll hear people sometimes, uh, the, one of the things I hear most often is they'll just come right out and say uh, the first point. Homosexuality, the Bible doesn't say it's wrong. Nowhere in Scripture do you find that homosexuality is wrong, which if you've listened to the first message, you're probably scratching your head thinking, are we reading the same Bible? Because it seems pretty clear to me. But you'll hear that. In fact, I was just reading an article this week by a group called the Human Right Campaign. You'll recognize them because on Facebook, they're the equal sign people. You know, equal rights, human rights campaign. And they invited a professor of practical theology from Columbia to speak into this issue of homosexuality. As if, so as if to say, hey, homosexuality, not only is it not wrong, but here's this professor of practical theology and he's going to tell us that it's okay. And I'm going to quote him directly so, not, so as not to misquote what he says. He says, while the passages of the Bible that address same-sex eroticism in the ancient world are negative, okay, at least he acknowledges that, that when you read about homosexuality in the Bible, he acknowledges them as negative. He says, while they are negative about the practices they mention, there is no evidence that these in any way speak to same-sex relationships of love and mutuality. What is he saying? He's saying that as long as you practice homosexuality with a good attitude and a good spirit, as long as you're doing it with somebody uh, who agrees with it and somebody who feels mutual about it, as long as you have a sense of attraction and love toward them, now what God has condemned, it's okay. Is it okay if as long as we believe something sincerely, does that make it okay? Is it okay for me to deny Jesus and, and, and worship to Vishnu and burn candles to Shiva simply because I'm sincere in my faith? No, the Bible says, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life, and the wrath of God abides on him. We're not free to believe what we wish as long as we do so with a sincere spirit. The Bible does not give us that permission. Man will try. Man will try to give you that permission, but God gives us no such permission. I want to share this with you, friends. Having studied through Romans 1, it's obvious and very clear how God feels about homosexuality, but as it often is with very clear passages of Scripture which negate what we wish to believe, we're going to try to find a way to put an asterisk next to that scripture and say, well, that's that one passage. Nowhere else in scripture does the Bible say that. And so you'll find people who try to attack Romans and they'll put an asterisk next to it. Now, there's a reason why I don't have to obey that. And so we have to ask ourselves, does the Bible talk about homosexuality anywhere else in the Bible? Well, if you listen to our first sermon, you heard plenty of cross-references, but I'm going to give you more. So if you go to places like Leviticus, are we going to see that God says as long as you love the fellow that homosexuality is okay? As long as we see mutuality, is that okay? Decide for yourself. Leviticus 18.22 says simply, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. When the Bible says lie with someone, it's a, it's a euphemism for saying sexual intercourse. Okay, again, parents, I didn't get this disclaimer earlier, but if your children are watching this, this will be a frank, though not graphic, discussion of homosexuality. Hopefully the title gave it away of what we're talking about, and you can determine whether or not this is appropriate for your children to discuss or to listen to. 
He says, you shall not lie with a male. You shall not have sex with a male as you, in the same way as you would with a woman. I think that's very clear that we're talking about homosexuality. God says, you shall not do it. It is, and God uses the term abomination. That's a term that God uses for select sins, and we'll talk about what an abomination is later. As long as I love a fellow, is it okay? God says you cannot have sexual relations with a man in the same way that you would as a woman. God calls it an abomination. He does not call it love. Well, what if it's mutual? What if we both agree to this? This is a mutual, this is a committed relationship. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Isn't love, love? Isn't this committed thing something that should be celebrated? Well, let's once again, let's go to Scripture. Leviticus 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman... Both of them have committed an abomination. God says nothing about intent. He says nothing about mutuality. There's obvious, obviously a mutuality taking place as they've both agreed to perform this act with one another. God simply says both of them have committed, there's that word again, abomination. They, this one goes beyond this, they shall surely be put to death, their blood is upon them. How does God see homosexuality? He sees it as a capital offense wait a minute, are you telling me that we're supposed to execute homosexuals? I'm not saying that. Remember, when this is given, Israel was a theocracy. They were their own government, and this was a law intended to take the morality of God and codify it into something that they could practice and carry out. In the nation of Israel, they were supposed to execute homosexuals, as they did many other capital offenses. So if this isn't something that we're necessarily supposed to carry out as a U.S. government, it's not a law that Christians are supposed to put to death homosexuals, then what can we draw from this passage? We can understand how seriously God takes homosexuality. God sees it as a capital-level offense. <clears throat> how about 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10? He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? They will not go to heaven. He says, do not be deceived. Why does he say don't be deceived? Whenever you look in the Bible and he says, do not be deceived, it's because this is a common area where people are deceived. This is something that many people think doesn't apply to me. Well, this can't be true in this situation. God says, don't fool yourselves. Don't deceive yourselves. That's the worst kind of a lie. Not one that somebody tells you, it's the one you tell yourself. God says, do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor those who practice, there it is, homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindles, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In this particular list of sins, God is sharing with us that someone who is a part of these sins in a practice habitual way Someone who believes that these sins are good. They will not confess to God that these are evil. They will, they will defend these different types of sins that they're actually good and acceptable and tolerable and reasonable within my life. Someone who believes these things so as to practice them, this person will not inherit the kingdom of God. How does God feel about homosexuality? God uses a lot of terms to, uh, to, to describe that not the least of which is they won't inherit the kingdom of God. God will put to death, if you will, eternally, the second death, someone who is a practicing homosexual. 1 Timothy 1.8 also speaks to homosexuality. Now we know that the law is good. 
We have to say this because a lot of times in the world, people think of the law of God as being something objectively bad. It limits my freedom. It limits my fun. This is a bad book. Bible's letting us know, declaring authoritatively, God's law is good if one uses it lawfully. We don't take the word of God and use it for our own purposes to prove our own points. The word of God is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, okay? It's not made for those who are already justified as believers that we are just rigidly following these laws like a Pharisee. He says, but the law is for those who are lawless and disobedient, for ungodly, for sinners, the unholy, the profane, Okay, that the law is there for a purpose. It's, a, it's supposed to be a tutor to guide us to Christ, Galatians says. He says the law is for those who, and then he lists a number of sins. It's for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, and there it is, for men who practice homosexuality. It's the Greek word arsane, right? We just talked about it in the first message, talking about a male, and the second word should be very clear what it means, coitus. That's what homosexuality is. It's not simply somebody who is struggling against same-sex attraction. We're talking about somebody who is practicing male coitus. First Timothy 8 calls that type of behavior along with all those other sins. Let's, let's be fair. God doesn't just feel this way about homosexuality. He feels this way about all the sins he listed. But today, the purpose of the message is discovering what God says about homosexuality. And so we limit our conversations there right now. God calls homosexuality, he, here's the terms he lists, lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane. Is there any ambiguity how God feels about homosexuality? This is not my opinion, friends. I'm not sharing you how I feel. I'm not being insulting to homosexuals. I'm telling you what the word of God says. This is what our creator God has revealed in his scripture. This is what God wants you and me to know about how he feels about certain practices. Why? So we don't enter into them. Why? Because God does not want to judge us. He doesn't want to condemn us. Did you know the Bible says that God doesn't actually enjoy condemning people? The Bible says that Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The Bible says that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. You may have out there, like many people, a false view of God, that he's this, this, this ogre up there with this bludgeon. He's just, he's just ready to strike us at any moment as if God hates us and despises us. We are his, God calls us his poema, his poem, his masterwork. His, he sees you as beautiful. God loves you. He desires you but he desires you to do life his way. And he wants to warn you, when you're not doing it my way, you're going to force my hand in judgment. And like any loving parent, we don't enjoy the discipline of our children. Certainly not any kind of judgment that would lead to their death or their eternal death and the second death. So God's word is extremely clear. At this point, we either choose to believe what God says or we choose to believe what man says. Those are our only two options with homosexuality. I want to say this, that it's been bantered about that a true Christian can never commit a homosexual act. Stay with me here. Can a true Christian commit a homosexual act? Yes, he can. Can a true Christian be a practicing homosexual? That's a different story. You're thinking, you just told me that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're talking about, and the term the Bible uses is somebody who is practicing. It's a way of life. 
Remember the other sins that we just talked about, okay? We also talked about those who are uh, unholy and profane, those who struck their father and mother. So if you've ever hit your father, are you doomed to hell forever? Can a Christian commit murder? They can. Can a Christian commit sexual immorality? That's also listed in those same sins of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we're not talking simply about a Christian who has stumbled into a sin, who's struggling against a sin. We're talking about a Christian who, who believes and defends that sin, who is living in it as a lifestyle. There is a far cry difference between a, person, a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction, who has entered into it before, and when they do, their heart is pricked, their heart is grieved, their heart is broken and destroyed, and they're begging God for deliverance from that sin. And a Christian, who, or someone who calls themselves a Christian, but who defends homosexuality. They believe in homosexuality. They live in homosexuality. The Bible says that individual will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's a description of somebody whose heart has not been converted. But a true Christian, while they can commit any sin, they can't commit it in the same way. In other words, they won't enjoy it like a lost person would. They will feel broken and remorseful. What, what else will happen in a Christian's life when they live in, or when they commit any sin, homosexuality included, um, they're going to have their conscience pricked. You can read in Romans chapter 2 in verses 15 and 16, uh, you can read about the conscience. Their conscience will convict them. We all have this little inner Jiminy Cricket inside of us that because we're made in the image of God that when we do something wrong, we know it's objectively wrong. And so if you're a Christian, you're living and you, you have practiced homosexuality, your conscience is going to say you shouldn't have done it. And you're going to be wounded from the inside. Furthermore, Hebrews 12, 6 says, whom the Lord di uh, disciplines, he, uh, he disciplines the ones he loves, and he chastises every son who he receives. So if you're a, Christ a true Christian and you commit a homosexual act, not only will you feel broken and pricked in your heart, but you should see the chastising hand of God upon you. You'll be the most miserable Christian on earth because God's hand is going to be upon you. He's going to bring difficulty and trial and struggle into your life. As we, every time we take of the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of this, 1 Corinthians 11. The Bible says that the purpose of the Lord's Supper is that we should examine ourselves. And we should look at our heart like David and say, search my heart, O God, and see if there's any wicked way in me. Okay, that's, but some won't do that. They're not going to look at their life. They're going to say, I'm just fine the way I am. Oh, I'm not perfect, but I'm fine. And we refuse to open up the doors of our heart and let God look in. For those people who refuse to deal with their sin, including homosexuality, God has a promise in verse 30 and 31. He says that this is why many of you who are weak and ill and some have died. Some of us are sick. Some of us are enduring the punishment of God through disease and sickness and deprivation and poverty and struggle and trial because we're not judging ourselves. We're not opening our heart to God and, and removing the sin that separates us from God. We're living for the very thing that Christ died for. God says you should expect that as any loving father, if you're truly my child, I'm going to discipline you. You know, you know what's interesting growing up? My mom never disciplined the neighbor kids. But if I got out of line, there was a belt. 
or there was a little black stick with electrical duct tape at the bottom, and, and they'd take that, and they would apply it when necessary. She wouldn't do that for the neighbor kids. She only did it for her children because she loves them. God is the same way. God, God isn't going to be disciplining lost people for behaving like lost people. The Bible even says, don't you be judging those outside the church for their sins. Don't be condemning them for the way that they're living. He says, that's not our job. That's God's job. He says, our job, though, is to judge those within the church. And again, that needs some clarification. It doesn't mean we live in a condemning way toward other Christians. It doesn't mean we have a checklist. It simply means if we see a Christian, Galatians 6.1, who's struggling in a sin, you who are spiritual, confront them with a spirit of meekness and fear, kindness, gentility, and love. And privately, we go to them and say, brother, can I help you? That's true Christian judging. Regardless of whatever you think Christian judging is, that's what it really is. But we don't judge those outside the world. We don't go to them. We don't picket things, and we don't hold up signs saying, God hates you. God hates homosexuals. You're going to hell. We don't judge those outside the church. That's not our job. That's God's job. But the Lord disciplines and chastises every son that he receives. And the Bible says, if we don't do that, if we don't judge ourselves, God's going to have to. It's what the Bible calls testing God. We're going to continue living in rebellion against God, pushing God to see how long it takes for God to respond in judgment. That's called testing the Lord. Some of us test the Lord with our lifestyle, and we're living in something that God has revealed as disobedient. But the promise of 1 Corinthians 11 is this. If we would judge ourselves truly, we'd be honest with God and honest with ourselves, and we would remove that sin preemptively. We would not be judged by God. God will withhold his hand of judgment because God's judgment is there is not simply to penalize us. It's there to bring us back to a state of repentance and to fellowship with him. Well, something else that you'll hear out there as you are talking to people about homosexuality is people will say that David was a practicing homosexual. And as is, is, is inconscionable as it is for most Christians to believe, a man after God's own heart, and yet he was a practicing homosexual? We're, you're, 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 if you're like me, you're scratching your head. Where on earth do you get that idea? Because the David I read about in the Bible, he had multiple wives. David had a soft spot in his heart for the ladies. Um, that was his problem, is he liked them too much. I mean, I'm looking at you, Bathsheba. Okay, she, David was highly attracted to the women. He had a problem with that. But yet, people will still level this accusation that David was a homosexual. Where on earth are they getting that? They're taking it out of context and misapplying it. it from 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 25 to 26. Okay, a little context here. David's best childhood best friend was Jonathan son of Saul. And because of his father's disobedience, Saul and many of his sons, including David, were slain on the field of battle. And when David had heard that his best friend for life was slain on the field of battle, his heart was, I mean, understandably filled with anguish. And David writes these words. He says, Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you. Listen to what he calls him. My brother, Jonathan, very pleasant have you been to me. And here's where they get, here's where they get you. They say, he says, your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. And they take that phrase of David's lamenting of his best friend's loss and proclaiming the love that he had for him. And they say that because David said his love with, for Jonathan surpassed that of women, therefore David was a homosexual. Is that true? Obviously it's not true. 
They're trying to find something. This is one of those cases where we read our own meaning into the Bible. Because we want God to bless and ordain homosexuality, we're going to find it where it doesn't exist. David doesn't say that he had a homosexual or a sexual relationship with Jonathan at all. What is this Hebrew word for love? It's, a, it's the word for loyal love. It's not a word for sexual love. It's a word for loyal love. Now, granted, this particular love is a love that can be expressed from male to female. It's a type of loyal love that a man can have for a best friend, that he's very loyal to them. Let me tell you, in Isaiah 63, 9, it's the same love that God says he has for man. If you're going to impose sexual love on this love, you're implying that God has a sexual desire for mankind. Friends, that is an offensive statement. We cannot impose sexuality where there is none. This is simply a loyal love. Is it okay for a man to have a loyal, genuine, deep-seated, abiding, loyal love for another man? Yes, and you should. Paul loved Timothy. John loved his disciples. Jesus loved his disciples. My father loved me. These are all beautiful and loyal loves. There's no sexuality in that love. If there were, there are terms that could refer to sexual love. In fact, in the Greek, there are for several words for, for love. You, have, uh, you do have a word for sexual love. That's eros. Okay? You have this, it's a, it's a sexual love. But most of the words for love were not erotic. You, you know, you would have different types of love, like uh, you would have phileo love. You remember Philadelphia? If you've been to Philadelphia, it's known as the city of brotherly love. So, so phileo love is a love where it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a David to Jonathan kind of love. It's this brotherly love. Remember, what did David call Jonathan my brother. Okay, he uses the term of brother. That's how David sees his relationship with Jonathan. He's close like family, and I'm loyal to him. This is not a sexual love. Brothers don't share a sexual love for one another, but people will try to put that on him. There's also agape love. It's a love of the will. It's a, it's a choice to love somebody no matter what they do. I'm going to behave in a loving way because it's who God, it's the way God loved me, and it's person God has made me into. There's even a storge love from which we get the word stork. We associate with delivering babies. It's the kind of love that a mother naturally has for her baby. That mothers, there's a natural God-given love that a mother has, this, this endearment, this connection, this bond that she has with the baby, and that's another type of love. Most types of love, the vast majority of love mentioned in Scripture, has zero sexual component of any kind. When we try to impose sexuality on all types of love, it's more of a revelation of where we are as a society that we are like in the days of Noah, where our thoughts and intents of the heart are only evil continually, and we see sex everywhere because sex is what is filling our hearts. There was no sexual component to David's love. Well, how then do we explain that his love was better than that of women? David is simply expressing that my love for you is greater than that I have of even close personal family. The Bible describes that in 18, Proverbs 18, verse 24. He says, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That sometimes there's people outside of our most intimate relationships that are just so dear to us. There's such a, a long-standing component to that. Just, there's, a, there's a deeper, more abiding and loyal love than even people who are a blood relation to us. And so David was no homosexual. 
But let's just pause for a moment. Let's just give you that argument. Let's say that somehow this authoritatively proved that David was a homosexual. He's not, but let's just say it is. David was also a murderer. Murdered Uriah the Hittite after he found out that David committed adultery with his wife Bathsheba. So David was an adulterer. If you're going to tell me that homosexuality is okay because David is a homosexual, you must also say that let's promote murder, let's promote adultery. You see, this is the problem when you try to build doctrine off of a historical narrative. You do not build doctrine off of a historical narrative. Because God mentions in a story does not mean that God advocates it. Just because God mentions that men had multiple wives in the Bible does not mean God endorsed it. You see, when God paints a picture of man, God paints him with the warts and the wrinkles and the, the messy hair. God paints him warts and all. He just shows you what happened. God isn't saying you should repeat that behavior unless later on God says you should repeat that behavior. So we don't build doctrine off of historical narrative. There's lots of sinful things. Jacob was a liar. Maybe we should lie. Obviously, that's not the intent of Scripture. So even if somehow you could just distort and twist the Scriptures to say that David was, an, was a homosexual, it still would not prove to us that we should commit homosexuality any more than we should commit adultery or murder. But having said that, David was no homosexual. I hope that you've seen that clearly. What else are we going to hear? What kind of things? You're going to hear this one very common. God judged Sodom not because of their homosexuality, but inhospitality. Now, the first time I heard that, that floored me. I'm thinking, wow, you know, the Sodom Airbnb gets a two-star rating and God rains fire down on it. I mean, that's pretty severe for showing inhospitality, but nonetheless, go on. Help me understand what you mean by that. And by the way, that's what you do in a conversation. You don't jump in when somebody says something like this and you go, no, it's not. You're so stupid. That's so dumb. Oh, whatever. We don't talk to people like that. Now we've entered into a fight. We've entered into a debate. And we don't want to enter into a debate. We want to keep a loving conversation where we say, okay, help me understand where you get that. You know, ask them questions. Where they get this is an oversimplification of Ezekiel chapter 16 in verses 49 to 50. And in that, it specifically says what the guilt of Sodom was. So let's look briefly at what the guilt of Sodom was. Obviously, we know homosexuality is among their sins. I mean, it's where the term sodomy comes from. It's from Sodom. But what are they judged for? So let's read that together. It says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. Okay, once again, almost like Romans 1, God is showing a dissension of Sodom into sin. They had pride. They had excess of food, which isn't a bad thing, but God is implying that the reason they had an excess of food is, is, is that they were storing it only for themselves and they would not use it compassionately to others. As Christians, we have what we have by God's grace and we compassionately use any excess that we have to bless other people. Sodom would not do that. They just stockpiled it. He says they lived in prosperous ease. That was the purpose of their life. They did not aid the poor and needy. And this is where they get this idea that they were judged for their inhospitality simply. They did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty, but then it says, and, and. Okay, so God's showing their dissension into, into sin. 
that God is judging them not for one sin, but for a multitude of sins. They've completely abandoned God in all ways. But God is going to highlight that there's one particular thing that they did that caused him to remove them. See if you can discover what that is. He says they did these and they did an abomination before me. Abomination, we've seen it several times already in this message alone. An abomination is referring to, if you'll read Genesis 18 and 19, their abomination is homosexuality. God says, I saw their abomination before me, so I removed them. When they committed the abomination, they, I allowed all of these sins for a period of time, like, like, like Paul recorded in the New Testament, uh, the, the times of your, your sinfulness, your unrepentance, God winked at. God allowed it to happen, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Okay, so there's a period of, of patience that God has as a nation is declining into sin, but eventually a nation can get to a place where they are so sinful, they are beyond saving. They are like the days of Noah, and God wipes it out with a flood. They were beyond saving. Can God take out a country if they have so descended into sin that God decides he's not going to tolerate it anymore and God will drop the hammer? He will do that. When is it here? It's when they committed an abomination before God. He says, they, he says, and they did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. God is showing you why he removed them. It's when I saw it, the abomination, that I removed them. What, did God remove them for hospitality? Yes and no. It's that and a lot more. But why did God ultimately scrub the planet of Sodom? It's because they committed an abomination. So I removed them when I saw it, the abomination. That's why God removed them. And so there's no ambiguity here if you'll read the full context of Ezekiel 16, 49, and 50 that God removed them because of their abomination. And again, if you, want, if you have any doubts that the abomination God is describing, read Genesis 18 and 19. God does not tell a story about Sodom, and one day they came in and they forgot to turn over their clothes and put a strawberry on it. God is not talking about inhospitality there. He's talking about two men come into town, and all the men of the city gather around the house and says, basically, send these men out that we might know them carnally. That is not a lack of hospitality. That is an abomination. That is homosexuality. And God says, when I saw it, Genesis 18 and 19, I removed them. Leviticus 18, 22, remember, God says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. I told you we'd talk about this word. Let's talk about just a minute what abomination means because we see it over and over again. God gives this particular title to not every sin, but multiple sins. It's a particular sin that upsets God in a very unique way. An abomination is a sin that is so noxious to God that it causes an emotional reaction within God of both hate and disgust. An abomination is a sin so noxious to God it causes an emotional reaction within God. Remember, God is an emotional being. He feels jealousy. He feels anger. He feels, uh, you know, the Bible says he who sits in the heaven laughs. God is an emotional God. We're created in his image as emotional beings as well. And so it creates an emotional reaction with God of both hate and disgust. That God, there's a sense in which God hates all sin. But there's some sins that create 
and stir up an emotional reaction within God. For instance, you know, if I'm driving down the roads here and somebody cuts me off in traffic, I'm annoyed. I would not call that an abomination. I'm not disgusted by that person. I'm frustrated with him. However, I saw a video this week that stirred up in my stomach an emotional reaction of disbelief and disgust. I saw in New Mexico there was a teen mother and evidently she had just delivered a newborn baby. The baby was still bloody. The umbilical cord was still attached to it. She wrapped the baby in towels. She placed it in a plastic garbage sack, a black plastic garbage sack. She tied it up. She drove over to the neighborhood gas station and she takes this, her newborn baby, and she takes this baby, and you look on the video, she just casually tosses it into a dumpster, gets in her car, and drives off. Friend, the feeling that I felt when I saw that wasn't the same feeling I had when somebody cut me off in traffic. I had an emotional response to that of disbelief, of anger, of hostility, of outrage, of frustration and disgust that a mother can turn on her, the, her baby in its most infantile stages and she can wrap it up like so much trash and throw it in a dumpster. Now you know the meaning of abomination. God feels about homosexuality like I felt with a mother throwing her baby in the trash. It stirs up an, an emotional response of God of hate and disgust. You say, boy, this sounds like a hateful message to me. Friends, no, I'm telling you what God says. I don't hate you. I'm not even sitting here in revulsion and disgust of you. Friends, if you're in homosexuality, I still love you as a person. You see, that's, that's what God can do. Out there in the rest of the world, I understand. Let me say this. Just speak to anybody who might be struggling with same-sex attraction today who might be listening to this. You're accustomed to going out into the world, and from most of the Christian world, you're accustomed to hearing nothing but anger, frustration, hostility. You're, you look at the Westboro Baptist people who are you know, picketing and they're saying hateful and mean and cruel and hurtful things to you. That is not what we're doing. What we're doing here is we're proclaiming what God says. Why? Because we love you. We're sharing this because we want you to understand what God says so that you don't have to face him later when it's too late. We want to give you an opportunity to turn from what God clearly calls sin. We want you to understand that God doesn't just see this like every other sin. He calls it an abomination, that it, what we're doing stirs up an emotional reaction within the gut, if you will, of God. We don't want to be there. Another thing that you're going to hear as you're talking to people about homosexuality is you're going to hear that God created man this way. We are born this way. Did Lady Gaga have it right? Are we just born this way? Is that just how we're created? First of all, let's just remember that when God created man and woman, the first man and woman, he created the schema, the schematic. He created them male and female. God does not, God does not reveal any other genders here. Just to, just to remind you in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, he says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. But I want to highlight what comes after that. And God blessed them. What does God bless? The union of male and female. 
That's what God blesses. If you want the blessing of God, you gotta do it God's way. We can't be like Cain and Abel. Where Abel, God says, give me a blood sacrifice, so Abel does, he gives him a lamb. But then Cain and says, I'm not gonna give you a blood sacrifice, I'm gonna give you what I want. I'm gonna give you corn, I'm gonna give you soybeans, I'm gonna give you potatoes. I hope you're happy with that, God, but I'm gonna do it my way. <coughs> God says, Cain, Cain, sin is crouching at your door and it's trying to consume you. If you, did, if you did like your brother Abel, would you not also be accepted? You want des accepted so desperately from people. Seek the acceptance of God. But to get the acceptance of God, we've got to do life his way, the way he created us. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them. And then God said to them, the male-female couple, he says, be fruitful and multiply. How else, do we not know, how else do we know that God didn't create other genders and things and homosexuality? It's because a homosexual couple cannot fulfill the command that God gave them. God gave them the command to do what? Be fruitful and to multiply. It means to engage in sexual relations in a, in a God-ordained, blessed way. And in so doing, it produces the fruit of the womb, be fruitful and multiply. It produces life. It produces children. God took great joy when the male and female who are compatible with one another, fit for one another, opposite but corresponding to one another, when they come together in that union, it produces life and it fills the earth with other creations like it, God enjoys that. He looks at that with, with, with great pleasure. God will not give a command to a, to a couple that are homosexual and say, be fruitful and fill the earth because that man plus man will equal death, not life. And so God did not create anybody homosexual, they could not fulfill even the most basic mandate that God has given for man and woman to do, and that is to multiply. Let me ask you this, will God judge somebody for the way they're born? No, he won't. God won't judge you because of your skin color. He's not gonna judge you because of any physical deformity you have. God will not love you less because you were born in a certain country. He will not love you more or less because you have, uh, you're in poverty or because you have riches. God does not judge a person because of what they're born into. We are, however, judged by our sins, and God calls homosexuality sin. Now, let me just pause and acknowledge for a moment. Our, we're, God doesn't create homosexuals, but does God create everybody equal? I mean, exactly the same way with the same strengths and weaknesses? Obviously not. Nobody would, nobody would say that. Are there people on earth, men and women, let's just take men for the example, does God create some men and they're born with less testosterone than other men? Yeah. They don't have as much leg hair or hair on their face or body maybe as some other men. Uh, their voices might be a little bit higher. They won't be quite as competitive. They won't be quite as aggressive because of that lack of testosterone. A person who lacks testosterone will be more susceptible, not bound to, but more susceptible to same-sex attraction. Okay? Simply because you have a temptation towards something does not make that a sin. It just means that you have to work harder than maybe another guy to avoid going against God's schematic. So you may be predisposed in some ways to struggle with some sins more than others, but God's law and standard doesn't change. It just means that this is what Hebrews calls a sin that so easily besets you. All of us have different strengths and weaknesses in our life, and we've got to deal with it. God's standard doesn't change. It doesn't, in the same way that just because you lack money, it doesn't make theft okay. 
Just because your situation is different doesn't mean the law changes. In the same way, you have some men who are born with tremendous amounts of testosterone. I mean, they got hair coming out every pore of their body. And they're just, they're aggressive and they're going to naturally, as a byproduct of having high testosterone, one of the natural biological results is that he will struggle with anger. He's going to be more aggressive. He's going to have much stronger, stronger libido, physical and sexual drives for someone else. So is somebody with a high testosterone count, does that now make rape okay? Because, well, I just understand. I mean, he's, he's got a strong sexual drive. He's got to get it out when he can. No, that does not justify his rape. Well, you know, he's got high testosterone, so now that justifies his anger because naturally, biologically, it's a chemical thing. It, friends, you cannot separate spirit and body. When, you do, when something is going haywire in your chemicals, we're still responsible for how we behave according to that. And so, yes, anger is a chemical reaction, but we're responsible to still behave in a way that honors God. In the same way, homosexuality, we're not born with it, but I will acknowledge that some people will be more susceptible to the message of same-sex attraction because of maybe some biological things that are there, but it doesn't change God's standard. It just means that you're gonna have to work harder to suppress your flesh. You say, boy, that's such an evil, hateful message. These people naturally are going to desire this, and you're telling them to suppress that. I'm not asking you to do anything that Christians don't do already. All Christians have to suppress their, their natural fleshly desires, don't we? It's a fruit of the Spirit the Bible calls self-control. It wouldn't be a fruit of the Spirit if it was natural. All of us have certain proclivities, certain desires to do fleshly carnal things. We have desires for immoral sexuality, or we have desires to overeat, or we have a desire for, I mean, I love sugar, you know? And, you know, and there's certain physical whatever in my makeup, evidently, that says, man, I love me some oatmeal cream pies, I like Twinkies, I like donuts. It's why Rick, you know, Mustard doesn't have to work too hard to convince me to go down to you know, Rural King and eat those Dutch fryers. I love them. However, does it justify me having uh, a gluttonous spirit and just eating what I want, when I want, how I want, simply because the natural desire is there? No, it does not. It's still gluttony. It is sin. We all are called by God to walk obediently, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so just like homosexual, or people with... Uh, same-sex attraction have to suppress that to conform to God's pattern. People who desire, you know, to be angry or they desire to overeat or they desire to do other things, likewise have to suppress those fleshly desires. That's, that's the war that every Christian fights. The flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit of the, against the flesh. They are contrary to one another, preventing us from doing the things that we want to do. It's what the Bible says. All Christians are called to suppress their, their fleshly desires to live within healthy parameters and in so doing, that honors God. People will ask you, you know, why are you picking on homosexuality? Aren't there so many other sins that you could just talk about? Man, all you Christians, all you can talk about is homosexuality. Why do you pick on it? Friends, it's not that today that we're picking on homosexuality. It's that we're not ignoring it. You see, that's what all the other churches are doing. That's what all the other people are doing. We plug our ears and pretend that homosexuality isn't still a sin. 
So it's not that we're picking on homosexuality. It's that we preach on sin equally. We preach the whole counsel of God. 2 Timothy 4, we preach the word in season when it's convenient, when it's popular, and out of season, when it's inconvenient, when it's unpopular. It's not that we're picking on homosexuality. It's that we're not avoiding it. In fact, if you go back, I, I challenge you, go listen to all the sermons that we've preached here at this church. We talk a whole lot more about the sins of the tongue, don't we? We talk about lying. We talk about uh, complaining. We talk about disputing. We talk about sowing discord. We talk a whole lot more about all the other sins. But we will not ignore homosexuality, especially when it is thrown right in our face and we see a looming danger on the horizon because of Canada's recent legislation that they passed, that C4 bill. And so it's not, it's not that we're picking, we're, we're lumping it in with, there's a lot of other sins and we don't ignore any of it. You'll hear it said, homosexuality is no different than any other sin. I would say to that, yes and no. If, you, if, if by yes, you're saying homosexuality is no different than any other sin, James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, he's become guilty of all of it. In other words, God's law is a pane of glass, and whether I throw a small rock at it or I throw a boulder at it, we've both broken God's law. We're guilty of breaking that window. In that sense, you're right, homosexuality is the same as any other sin. But if you're going to tell me by saying this that homosexuality is no worse a sin, it does not affect the heart of God any differently, there's no greater consequences to it, it should be treated the same as a, as a white lie, or driving five, minute, five miles over the speed limit, friends, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna take you to task on that one. Does God give a gradation of sin? Friends, anytime there is punishment for sin, we have graded, if you will, the severity of a sin within society. If you go five miles over the speed limit, you might get a, a small slap on the hand, you know, a, a, you'll get a fine. If I go 45 miles over the speed limit, you're gonna take my license away, you might put me in jail, why? Because going that far over, I might put someone's life at risk. If I just shoplift a Snickers bar in my pocket, there's a certain punishment that's ascribed to that. We've placed a value on that crime. We don't see that as being as important or as serious as, say, if I were to go and physically assault a man and put him to the floor and, and beat him. There would be a very different uh, evaluation of the severity of that sin. Did you know that God gives an evaluation of the severity of certain sins in the Bible. If all we have to do is look back uh, under Israel's theocracy and we can see how God feels about sins. He ascribes certain crimes and punishments. So for instance, if um, I go over, even in cold blood, and I go out and I, and I kill Mark's pig, I have, the punishment is I've gotta take the best of my pigs and I've gotta give it to him. There's restitution that's made. However, if, if, uh, if I go over and I kill my neighbor, God does not see that as exactly the same. God sees it as a more severe, more intense sin and crime, and you're going to take my life. You see, there's gradation. There's a, there's a whole series of laws. God doesn't see all sin the same way. All sin sends men to hell. All sin does not have the same consequence. In the same way, remember that God calls certain sins an abomination. They, they churn his stomach in a certain way that God particularly despises it. Remember in Leviticus 20, the Bible says they've committed an abomination. 
their blood shall be upon them. What's he saying? That in those days, how did God feel about homosexuality in, in the category of sins? It's in the highest degree, highest degree of sins, that it's up there with all other capital offenses that God will take your life. And he says, don't be surprised. He says, their blood will be upon them. The blood that is shed from you for committing this homosexual act, it's on you. You know the truth. You disobeyed the truth. It's your fault that you're executed for your homosexuality. And so God sees homosexuality as a very serious sin, not on the same level as every other sin. We say this because we want to try to play nice with society. We try to soften the blow for our neighbors because we have a friend or we have a family member in it, and we have an innate desire to soften it to them. Oh, it's just like that. It's just like me. It's just like what I do. It's, you know. And in, a, in that sense, yes, we've all sinned greatly. But for a society or a person to enter into homosexuality, there is a whole series of sins as we descend that slippery slope of society into homosexuality. It shows that a person's heart has had to make, go through a whole lot of decisions and sins of continual habitual rebellion against God. Doesn't mean that we love people who commit homosexuality less, but God sees it as a very serious condition of one's heart. In fact, God even plucks out certain sins from the, the human sinner bouquet and says, these ones I despise. There's a sense in which God hates all sin, but there's a passage in Proverbs Chapter 6, verse 16, God says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven there are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes. Why, are you telling me that my pride is an abomination to God, that it turns his stomach? That's exactly what it's saying. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue. Someone who goes around spreading lies and slander. God, it, it turns the stomach of God. Hands that shed innocent blood. There's, God feels more strongly about some sins. They're just so antithetical to him. They're just so opposite of the nature and character of God. God sees it, and he feels a, an emotional response. Ugh. He just, he despises that. All sin is sin, but there's some sins God actually calls abomination. Now, how do we respond to homosexuality in real life? When we go out there, the guardrails are released, and we're out there with people, what do we do? First thing I want to mention, we've kind of touched on it before, but I want to mention it again, don't enter into debates or arguments with people. That does not mean don't enter into meaningful conversations where you respectfully ask one another questions in an attempt to understand one another, where you introduce truth in a civil way. That's good. But sometimes you can feel a conversation and it's gone from intellectual to emotional. And now we are, we're not two people discussing something. We're against one another. When you're in a debate... And, you know, the wind blows, what do you do? You lean into it and you hold your hat down. You know, you're getting ready for something. Same thing in a, in a debate. Your, your heart is not open. Once you've entered into a debate, the emotions are involved. Your, their heart is not softened to hear your message. They're not going to receive anything you say as love. You, that, that gospel opportunity is gone. Nobody has ever been conquered in a debate to the glory of God so that now that they, they see their need of Jesus to come in. I've not seen that. Now, it doesn't mean that we cannot reason as Paul did in the synagogues. Paul said he reasoned with the synagogues. Reasoning with people using Scripture in a civil conversation, very different than having a face-to-face -face argument where we pitch ourselves on two opposing sides toward one another. Our, our goal as Christians is not to conquer people in spiritual debates, it's to share truth with them with the purpose and intention of showing them the love of Jesus 
so that they respond by faith to him. Next thing I'll say is that those rules especially apply to social media. When you get online, sometimes uh, when we're able to sit behind the comfort of our house and we're, we're behind those walls and we can throw our darts long distance, we can sometimes become a little more barbed in the way that we speak to one another. Be especially careful on social media. Do not make incendiary comments. Don't try to light people up. Don't try to stir them up. Don't try to be, don't appear hateful toward them. They're already expecting that behavior of Christians. They're already expecting that we're going to be mean, cruel, unkind, and hateful toward them. Show them that the opposite is true. I can hold an opposing viewpoint, but not hate you. Not behave in a hateful way towards you. Because that's what they're expecting. Under, remember this, friends, about those, especially in today's day and age and culture, when they enter into gay and lesbian relationships, there's a lot of positive social pressure to cause someone to consider that especially amongst young people, junior high, high schoolers, when we're at our most vulnerable state, we are wild bundles of insecurity and we desperately want something to give me a sense of meaning, maybe a boyfriend or an achievement of some kind. I need something to validate me that I'm okay. Now enters in homosexuality. It's, it's celebrated in community. Wow, what a hero. You're so brave. We love you. Oh, don't you say anything bad about them. Are you doing it because they're homosexual? You know, and, and we'll protect them. And so young people will find that there's a protected status there. That if I enter into this lifestyle, I'm protected. I'm revered as being, as being brave, as being something that's morally good. And all those Christians, they're the weird ones. And so... There's a, there's a lot of pressure pushing kids into that mold. I want to be in that protected space. And so there's a lot of people considering homosexuality, a gay or lesbian lifestyle, who would not otherwise, because they're so insecure, they're willing to give it a thought because they so want the security that being in that circle provides them. And they'll start to see that anybody who disagrees with them, that threatens that security. That's why the people get so upset. It threatens their security, and they, and they start to equate acceptance with agreement. If you disagree, therefore you don't accept me. Well, that, that's never been true. That completely stifles any free speech. When people start saying to disagree with me is to hate me, it's a bullying technique. It's trying to get you to shut down. It's, it's like in politics today. If somebody calls you a racist, it's a bullying technique. What you're saying has absolutely nothing to do with race, but if I bring the race card in, conversation's over. They've used a bullying technique to stifle and shut down opposition, typically when they know that their argument holds no water. And so we say that to accept is to love, to disagree is to hate. That's, that's not true anywhere else in life, is it? When we lived in China, we had a couple of small minpin dogs named Shadow and Cole. And these were little mischievous dogs, and my girls loved them desperately. Uh, played with them at all times, slept with these dogs, would put them in their backpack, little doggy head sticking out the window, at the, at the backpack <laughs> zipper, and uh, everywhere these girls went, these dogs went. They loved these dogs unreservedly. But it didn't mean that they loved everything those dogs did. If you've had dogs in the home, you know what dogs do. There were certain places in the homes that those dogs, as they got older, grew accustomed to urinating in certain corners of the house. Or at times, you'd walk into a room without turning on the lights and you step in something. At that point, our girls were very displeased with the dog. 
They would, they'd go over to the kennel or sometimes they'd see that the dog, or, those dogs were weird. They had a proclivity to uh, snack on my daughter's undergarments and we'd find their chewed up underwear in the dog kennel and we're like, Argh! you know, our girls, they don't have to approve of urination or defecation or the destruction of their undergarments to love the dogs. They loved those dogs with their life and they wept uncontrollably when we had to leave them behind. But they didn't approve of everything those dogs did. And so to expect that kind of behavior anywhere else in life is utterly ridiculous and unrealistic. It is a bullying technique to get you to believe in what I believe in so that I can maintain that circle of security that I've created for myself. Well, what about friends or family members who are, who are into this lifestyle, who are practicing this? How do we respond to them? Do we still spend time with them? You spend intentional time with them. Remember, Jesus spent a tremendous amount of time with people who were considered sinners. A lot of times Jesus was called a drunkard because he would hang out with those who were lingering long at the wine. Jesus had no problems associating someone caught in adultery Okay? He didn't put himself in compromising situations, let's be clear. But Jesus had no problem spending time with, making friends with those who are living in a lifestyle that is opposite of what God desires for us. It shows love. And so, should we spend time with those who are practicing homosexuals? Absolutely. Show love to them. Now, they don't need to necessarily be your best friend. You don't want to let them influence you into that lifestyle. But we don't want to completely shut that out want to be careful. Now, I want to provide a little disclaimer, a little asterisk here. If you are a young person, okay, we're talking about a full-grown, mature adult intentionally entering into the lives of homosexuals so as to show love to them. If you're, if you're a child and, you, and we're talking about you spending a great deal of time with somebody who may influence you into that lifestyle, that's a very, very different story. Be very careful that you don't learn their ways because when we're in the presence of sinful people, the Bible says, do not be deceived. Once again, why? Because we're deceived about this. Evil company corrupts good morals. If we spend too much time around a person, their morals become our morals. It's why the Bible says, do not make friends with an angry man. Why? Lest you learn his ways. So we're not talking about young people that we just throw them together into close best friend relationships with those who identify as gay, lesbian, transgender, lest our children learn their ways. There's a big difference between our children doing this and an adult choosing to intentionally spend time with those who are of that lifestyle that needs to be said. Parents, be very cautious with that. We guard our children's hearts until they're old enough to learn how to shepherd themselves and to guard their own hearts. But you'll have to spend time intentionally with them because they're not going to believe that you want to spend time with them. They're accustomed to being shunned and cast out by Christians and by the church. It's going to take some time for you to convince them that you're a safe place and that you genuinely care for their well-being. But spend intentional time with them. Do we act lovingly toward their partners? Oh, this is a tough one. Your child, let's say, let's say your child has entered into a homosexual lifestyle, but then now they start bringing their their partner around. And let's say that child is, they're not in your home, they're not under your control, they're outside of your home. They're a full-grown adult and they're making these choices. How do you respond to that, that partner, possibly entered into some kind of a homosexual union, legal, some kind of legal coupling with them? How do we respond to them? It's gonna be difficult because you're going to see that person as having drugged your child into a certain lifestyle, but we need to dissolve ourselves of that. Our child chose this behavior. Yes, they were influenced by other people, but ultimately they made a choice. 
And sometimes showing love to that partner might be what God uses to convert their heart who might help your child to come out of that lifestyle as well. So show love to all people, including those others. Now that's a really hard one to do. It's a very, very hard one to do. But we show love to all people. Do we share the gospel with those who are gay, lesbian, transgender, whatever all the other letters are of LGBTQ+. Do we share the gospel with them? Of course, we share the gospel with all men. This is good news of great joy, which shall be for, what's the Christmas message? All people. We share it to all people. You say, well, there's no way that someone in that lifestyle is gonna receive Jesus. How do you know? You had the apostle Paul who was murdering and jailing Christians, who was persecuting the church of God. God had the power to knock him off of a donkey onto the ground in broad daylight and blind him and drag him into the kingdom. Can God in the same way, take somebody out of a, an LGBTQ plus lifestyle and, give, and bring the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ to them. Absolutely, God's in the business of changing hearts. Do we invite them to church? Absolutely, please do. If you have somebody who is a practicing homosexual, somebody who's dabbling in it, somebody who's struggling with it, they are LGBTQ, I don't care whatever their, their prefix, they're welcome here at Unity Baptist Church. But we need to make sure that as a church body, we're ready to receive people who are in that lifestyle, just like we do everyone else. I mean, would you, if somebody showed up at the church and you could smell, you know, smoke and cigarettes and alcohol on their breath, would you, would you turn them away? Of course not. If you knew that a husband and wife were struggling and that at one point in time, he'd even been abusive with his wife and they came to church, would you throw him out? Of course not. If you knew that there was someone who is a habitual slanderer or a liar, would you forbid them from coming? If we did this, friends, this church would be emptier than it is right now. None of us would be allowed in. We allow all types who want to come and hear the word of God and who, and, and, and who want to experience what, you know, God's love. Everybody is welcome here. And when they come, we receive them with open arms and we say, you know what, welcome. You want to blow their mind? Invite them out to lunch. Befriend them. Show them that the stereotype that they have in their mind of a hateful Christian is only that. It's in their mind. That we are those who love all people regardless of what you've done. Sort of like God who says, whosoever will may come. Come and drink of the waters of life freely. That's an open invite to all people, you and I included. So they're one of us. If they're in sin, they're one of us. We have also been in sin, and God has saved us from that. Here's a difficult one, though. Do we attend or participate in gay weddings? This is difficult, especially if it's family. My personal belief is that we should not, and this is a hard one. But when we are showing love to a person outside of that, we're not endorsing their lifestyle, we're just showing love to the person. But when we participate in, and we share in a gay wedding, by the way, there's no such thing. God does not recognize a bolt being married to a bolt or a nut to a nut. They are not suitable, they are not complementary to one another. God does not recognize such a marriage. And for us to participate in such a marriage is to place our personal support on what's taking place there. 
There are many other sinful things that take place in society. We don't go and we don't participate in it. Why? Because our presence there shows a tacit approval of what's taking place. And as believers, we've got to be very careful and use this as an opportunity to explain why and do it in love. I would love to be a part of your marriage, but as a believer, I understand that God does not approve of this wedding. I love you and I accept you as a person, but I can't accept what you're doing. I cannot be a part of what something, something that God has condemned, that God says is, is a sinful practice. However, I still love you and you're still welcome here. You can still come here for Christmas. You can still enjoy holidays. We'll still spend time together. I will still hug you. I will still love you. And I will still pray for you. But there are, certain, there are certain places that a Christian cannot go as we give approval to particular lifestyles. Let me say this, because they're going to see us as the enemy quite often. Uh, people are in that lifestyle. People living in sin often see the church as the enemy, sadly. And some of that's warranted. Some of it's deserved. Sometimes the church has been unkind and cruel to those who are in sin. But we need to make sure that even if they see us that way, we don't view them as the enemy. You see, Ephesians 6, 12 describes who the real enemy is. He says, for we do not wrestle. Our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's against no humans. There's no human on earth that is truly, spiritually speaking, our enemy. What is our enemy? It's against rulers. We're not talking about politicians, by the way. Uh, you'll see what he's talking about here. Rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. We're, the real enemy are spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. What he's saying is that when, when there's these people who are rebelling against God, they're being controlled and influenced by demonic and evil forces present in the world today. So don't hate the puppet. The real enemy is the puppeteer. They're just being manipulated and used. And the great deceiver, Satan, laughs. He and the spiritual forces of wickedness are the enemy. The people are not your enemy, no matter what they say about you, no matter what they do to you. People are not the enemy. We are called to love them. We are called to agape, a love of the will. Regardless of how you feel about a person or their behavior, their sinful practices, we choose to behave in a loving way toward them. Let me just speak as we close here. To anybody who may be practicing homosexuality, you're struggling with the LGBTQ lifestyle or whatever your, your deal is, for whatever reason, you've made it to the end of two whole sermons, a very clear message of what the Bible says about homosexuality. Let me tell you, like us, God does not hate you the Bible says in John 3, 16, God so loved you, he loved the world that he gave his only son, that if you'll believe in him, you can have life in his name. God loves you. Jesus so loved you that he died in your place. The punishment that you deserve, that I deserve, that everyone else here deserves, he died in your place. Jesus, he came here to live the life that we couldn't live. He lived a perfect life so that when he died on the cross, it was not for his sins, but ours. And being the perfect son of God from eternity past in human form, he died on the cross. He bore the punishment we deserved. He was buried and he rose again on the third day, proving he had the power over death and life.
And that same Jesus offers salvation freely. But Romans 5.8 says it's a gift of God. What do we have to do to receive a gift? When Jesus died on the cross, it's not just that all men were immediately born again and changed. We have to receive that gift. We have to be willing to acknowledge, to confess to God that what God says is true and what I used to believe is not. We repent of that sin. We turn away from it. We identify that that sin is objectively bad for me and I'm turning from that. I want to receive what Jesus said is right. I want to live his way. I want his life. And when we do that, the Bible says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you, even you, will be saved. You say, well, you don't know what I've done. I have gone against God my entire life. You don't know what I've done. I've, I'm still in a homosexual lifestyle with multiple partners. You don't know what I've done. God knew you'd say that. That's why in three verses later in Romans 10, 13, he says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Who is whosoever? It's me. Liar, thief, murderer at heart, adulterer at heart, scoundrel. All those things God saved me from, it means me. But whosoever also includes you. Jesus right now, if you've made it this far in two messages and you're still in that lifestyle, it's because God is calling you to put your faith in Jesus Christ today. He's speaking directly to you and to your heart. Listen to your conscience. Listen to what God is saying to you. Consider the words and the truth of the gospel and receive Christ as your Lord, which means that I'm no longer on the throne of my heart, okay? I get off and I let God call the shots I'm not going to define good and evil for myself any longer. I'm going to let God do that. I'm going to allow Jesus to be who he is in my life. He's going to be Lord. And when we receive Jesus Christ as Lord, the Bible says, you will be saved. And it's only in the arms of Jesus that you're going to find that acceptance that you're looking for. Man's acceptance, it comes and goes. What people applaud today, they're going to throw stones at tomorrow. But Ephesians 1, 6 says that Jesus Christ makes us accepted in the beloved. There's no greater acceptance than to know that the God who knows you best, who created you, declares you righteous and declares you loved, who declares you to be accepted. You want acceptance, you come to Jesus. That's an acceptance that'll never be taken from you. And so if you want someone to talk, talk to about this, you want someone to pray with you, I encourage you, call the church. I'll talk to you personally. You want to come to church? You're welcome at Unity Baptist Church, just like any one of us who have also gone against the law of God, saved simply by grace, not because we're good, but because he is. I encourage you, call. Talk to one of us. We'll pray with you. When you come here, you won't be treated poorly or any differently. I don't care if you show up with horns in your head wearing all black. I don't care if you come here with your face painted up and you got tattoos on every square inch of your body. I don't care if you just lit up a cigarette before you came into church. You'll be accepted and you will be loved here because that is how God loved me. And I pray that you'll experience that when you come here. Let's close in prayer. Father, I just pray tonight for anybody who is listening, who is contemplating their need of you and their need of Jesus as their Savior. God, would you today convict their heart as you did of mine, of the sins that were abundant in my life and that separated me from you. God, I pray that you would draw their heart to you that they might believe in the Jesus who loves them and saves them, that we would stop defending our sin, that we would stop defending what we want to believe is true and accept what is objectively true from your word. 
God, I pray that many hearing this message might receive that message fully and completely, understanding that true acceptance in life doesn't come from people, it doesn't come from movements of society, it comes from being in the arms of God, being made accepted in Christ. We pray all of this in Christ's name and for His glory. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to make a decision to ask Christ into your heart, simply click on the link in the show notes and we'll be able to help you find your way to Jesus. If you've enjoyed today's message, give our podcast channel some love by liking and subscribing to it. As promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at Unity Baptist Ashland. Remember, if you know Jesus as your personal Savior, you are never alone. He is always near, and you are deeply loved. Until next time, have a great day.